Welcome to the Hope City Drip. This is a podcast of Hope City Church here in Clinton, Iowa, church plant. And uh, on this podcast, the purpose that we're trying to get across here, um, why we're making this podcast is that if you're someone with a busy, hectic, chaotic schedule, uh, and you just want something on in the background um, in order to digest the mission and the vision of our local church, we just want to be helpful. And so this podcast is designed for you to do just that. And so whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you have littles running around and you're constantly um, pulled in different directions to the glory of God, or whether you're uh, a shift worker and you're traveling uh, all over and, uh, and you have some time to kill, and you're listening to this in your car or um, the headphones and you need to do 2x speed or whatever. We just hope that this is helpful for you uh, to live for the glory of Jesus and the joy of our local community here. And my name is Nick Powell. I am the lead pastor here at Hope City Church. And this podcast is going to be a little different uh, than the other podcasts that we've been doing. Um, it's different in that I'm going to explicitly... Uh, focus on our next sermon series that we're going through. This podcast is going to serve as an introduction to um, the the sermon series that we're going to do. And what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew, um, the first gospel, so the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 5 uh, through 7. And this, I'm super excited about this because um, Matthew uh, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the most well-known pieces of the scriptures, of all of the scriptures. And it's one of the most well-known and memorable um, moments of Jesus' teaching. And so as, you know, I've daydreamed and, um, you know, I've stirred my imagination as I've prayed with God and just asked him to fill me with a, a, a focus and a heart for ministry and for reaching the lost in this Clinton community. Um, I think often about just, I want that to be modeled after the way of Jesus. And I know that sounds like almost obvious to say, I mean, we're, we're planting a Christian church. And so shouldn't what we're doing be modeled after Jesus? Well, yes, but what does that look like? You know, what does that really look like? And so I think uh, the Sermon on the Mount is this vision that Jesus is casting. And, uh, and one of the phrases that I like to use uh, for uh, the word, the Christian word called discipleship, which essentially means uh, just following Jesus. Uh, one of the phrases that I really find helpful uh, to describe discipleship is practicing the way of Jesus. And so Jesus, if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus, one of the things that I want to make sure I get across is that the Christian life is, is totally livable. Uh, it's not just packing away ideas into my container brain. You know, it's not just going to program to program to program or event, event, event to get the right information stuck into my mind. And it's also not just um, writing some feel-good, positive uh, vibe. You know, I'm not just going for the feels at each event and event and event. Um, there is a way uh, to live. There, Jesus invites us into a way of life 
that is more like a vocation. It's totally comprehensive. It touches everything in our lives. It touches our finances. It touches our jobs. It touches our relationships, our decisions on where we move and houses we buy, neighborhoods we live in. It touches everything. It's an all-encompassing total way of existing in this world. And Jesus is inviting us into his way, which is, of course, we believe, the best way. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful, a beautiful text of scripture to give texture to practicing the way of Jesus. So as a church planter in Clinton, Iowa, as we're trying to rally people around uh, the vision of uh, the way of Jesus, we want to practice the way of Jesus together. We really want to make sure that we orient ourselves um, and align ourselves to the way of Jesus. And so the Sermon on the Mount is just, it's just a great, it's a great text to dive into. So I'm super excited about it. And uh, so in this podcast, real quick, I want to, I really want to pop the hood a little bit on um, really just what are some of the big, broad brushstrokes that are going to be seen uh, and felt and heard in this sermon series um, that we get from the text. This isn't just something that I've come up with. I'm not really that clever. Uh, And so I've sat with the text, um, just soaking in the scriptures, um, learning more about the context and, uh, and so one of the resources, aside from just diving into the Bible itself, one of the resources that I found particularly helpful is uh, a commentary written by a guy named Jonathan Pennington, and it is called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And so in his commentary, he points out a few helpful things that I think are going to be absolutely necessary for our understanding uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so what I mean by that is that you won't really understand um, the impact of this sermon uh, or this section of scripture. You won't, you won't really understand the weight of this teaching of Jesus unless you understand some necessary background information. And so um, let me first start with uh, what I think is a summary statement for the Sermon on the Mount. So I just told you why, you know, I basically just told you why I'm interested in it, um, but Let me just start with a summary statement. So this, I think, is going to be a um, a working draft definition of sort of the overall point of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it goes like this. So after announcing the good news of the kingdom, so Jesus, he's he's, uh, the, the context of the Sermon on the Mount is what happens at the end of chapter four. Jesus has just begun his ministry. And one of the things, the thing, that Jesus is the most obsessed with is proclaiming and announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. And so after announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, and and he invites people into this kingdom life, these are his disciples, inviting people to follow him into the kingdom of God, Jesus casts a vision for what it looks like to live a flourishing life single-hearted devotion uh, to God. So a flourishing life uh, and single-hearted devotion. So to sum it up, what I think Jesus is painting here is a portrait of human human happiness. And that might surprise you, human happiness. It seems, happiness seems like a trite word, right? Happiness is uh, oftentimes 
just a cheap way to describe um, an experience. You know, oh, I'm happy. Happy, I mean, we all strive for happiness, but oftentimes the, the word in the English connotates this like surface level emotional, you know, it's totally dictated based on circumstances. You know, uh, oh, you know, bought, my boss brought donuts to the staff meeting or I got a $5 gift card to Jimmy John's. That makes me happy. You know, that's, that doesn't seem quite on par with the abundant life that Jesus promises. And so um, what I want to say is that happiness uh, in, the, in earlier times, um, there, there's words that different cultures have used that we oftentimes translate as happiness. So different, different cultures use different languages like the Greeks, um, the Hebrew people. Um, these are the languages of the, the scriptures in their original context. Uh, oftentimes they use words that just don't, they don't necessarily translate really that well. Uh, into modern vernacular. And so this is why I find um, teachers who are smarter than than us, uh, definitely smarter than me, I find teachers helpful that are going to be helpful guides for us as we walk through the scriptures. And in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, um, the guy by name Jonathan Pennington, he's a professor out at, I think, Southern Seminary. Um, he uh, He provides a really helpful... Um, he provides really helpful context to this sermon. Um, and it has to do with the, the language used, the words used um, in the original uh, Greek, which was what the, the original manuscripts that were written, like the first draft, so to speak, of, it's not a draft. It's uh, the first time that the scriptures were written down, it was written in Greek. And, uh, and we've since then translated that um, into English. Uh, and so the source, so what we're working with in the Sermon on the Mount is um, uh, there, there's some helpful background that we have to understand. And so he, he uses two words. He, he points out two words that are present in this sermon that are pillars. So you can think of, uh, you can think of a house or some sort of structure that has main support columns. Uh, and these Support columns, uh, Pennington points out there's two words, and uh, they're found in the text in the Greek. One word is makurios, or makarios. I don't know how to pronounce it because I don't speak Greek. But the word means human flourishing. And there's another word called teleos, T-E-L-E-I-O-S, which means wholeness or single-hearted devotion. And there are these these words are packed with meaning that we don't necessarily um, we we don't necessarily uh, have those connotations when we read those when we read uh, the Sermon on the Mount. For example, the, one of the most famous sections of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. It's the first thing you bump into, and so when the most English translations, I believe, use the word blessed. So you're familiar with the opening of the Sermon on the Mount where he gather, he ascends the mountain. This is Jesus. He ascends the mountain, gathers his disciples, and then he says, uh, blessed or blessed. Blessed if you're King James, but blessed are the poor in spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and so on and so on. He says blessed. Well, the word blessed there is actually the word um, makarios, 
which is more helpfully translated to mean human flourishing or happiness. So the interesting thing about the way language works is that, you know, different words connotate different things depending on the culture that you live in. So if I said the word um, banging, you know, if you're a, if you're somebody who listens to, to music pretty heavily or even just casually, but you like a good tune, if someone says banging, you might think that was a banging song or that was a banger, right? Well, if you talk to somebody who lived in the 1800s and said that was banging, they might think hammer, banging on some metal in a factory or banging like, you know, muskets going off, guns, banging. So language, the same word can connotate different things to different cultures. And so one of the, one of the tasks of interpretation uh, is when you look at the scriptures, what we want to do is we want to, um, by God's grace, with the Spirit's help, we want to not just read the text superficially and go, oh, I'm going to decide what that means. We want to dive into the original context of when this was written because the Bible was written by real human beings. We believe as, um, we believe as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that God inspired and used real human beings to write down his word. And so when we read the Gospel of Matthew, where the Sermon on the Mount is located, Matthew, the author, is a real human. And he chose words by the Spirit's inspiration, but he chose words to communicate a message. And so the meaning of this passage is uh, dictated, is, is not just something that we can just decide for ourselves what it means. It's, it's dependent on our understanding of what Matthew meant. We have to, uh, and this is what interpreters call authorial intent. What was the intention of the author? This is super important. And I don't want to negate the, the, you know, I don't want to discredit the, the need for the spirit of God to speak to um, any Christian that opens up their scripture. I believe every Christian who opens up their Bibles uh, with a willing and uh, receptive uh, heart, God will speak to. And maybe something simple. I mean, the gospel is simple. And so I'm not saying that you can, I'm not saying you have to read commentaries or have to know Greek or Hebrew to discover um, the plain meaning of scripture. But I am saying that God has given the church teachers. God has given the, the church um, tools and um, men and women who are skilled in understanding um, things like authorial intent and context. And those uh, people are gifts to the church. So Jonathan Pennington and other commentators who have spent their life studying the scriptures um, help illuminate God's word in particular areas. And so I think the Sermon on the Mount is especially important uh, to discover the first century context. So I want to go into that real quick. And I promise you this, this is just going to be, we're going to be so, um, we're just going to be so enamored with Jesus. Uh, Jesus as the great teacher. Uh, Jesus is just a wonderful teacher, and he is so radical in his countercultural vision for what does it mean to, to flourish as a human being. Um, and so it's essential that we do our due diligence. Uh, and this is why I'm talking this in a podcast, is I don't want to spend a lot of time on Sunday morning during a sermon 
um, going into a lot of this. This is, I just want you to know that this is going to be in the background. Um, it's going to be humming sort of under the surface, um, and it's going to, it's going to help, um, illuminate the meaning of this, of the scripture. So some of the historical context, the background, there's, there's two contexts here that converge, um, that, that really help us understand what the original audience um, would have thought of this uh, sermon of Jesus. Context number one is what people call Second Temple Jewish uh, Judaism. So Second Temple Judaism is essentially a, a term to describe a period of time of the Jewish people. So it, it's after the destruction of the first temple, and it's this period of time when they, the exiles come home and uh, they rebuild this, um, they, they, they endeavor to rebuild their, their people, their, um, kingdom and, and they rebuild their temple. And so it's this like section of human history. I don't know the exact dates, but it's the section of, uh, Jewish history that scholars call second temple, temple Judaism. And, uh, this is the context in which Jesus, um, enters into. And so the, uh, the second temple Jewish tradition was very, very concerned um, with uh, wisdom. It was very concerned with, um, well, there's a phrase in the scriptures that says, fear of the Lord. Uh, the Second Temple Jew- Judaism has a, has a long, rich history of wisdom, with, uh, understanding how to live in um, God's kingdom as God's people, living accord of God, according to God's ways and God's design. So you think of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms, Job, this section of the Bible, very, very interested in how to live a wise life. But it's not just wisdom in terms of making good decisions. The the central motif of that is the people's desire to live a flourishing life. And this is something they shared in common with uh, the, the Greek, the Greco-Roman tradition of the time period that this uh, that Jesus comes onto the scene. The Greco-Roman tradition um, was very deeply concerned with virtue. How is a person to live a virtuous life? And both of these traditions um, or cultures, you could say, were present um, in the, the actual area where Jesus was born and lived his life and began his public ministry. And so you have this Greco-Roman culture, very concerned with um, virtue and how a human being um, should live their lives and not not just live their lives, but what type of person should um, we strive to become? You know, what type of people should we be? And ultimately, the aim of that was to become happy was to, to live a, a flourishing, meaningful life. And, and so the, uh, these traditions, the Greco-Roman virtue tradition and the uh, Jewish wisdom tradition were both concerned with, to put it bluntly, how to be happy. And so we are, um, we as modern people, we share that. We, share, we may not th- agree on how to get there, or even what the definition of happiness is, like just in terms of the culture, like unbelievers, um, you know, there's just probably not a lot of consensus if you asked the average person on the street, like what do they, what do they think of happiness? You know, you're gonna get a whole, all sorts of different answers, but I'm really concerned with this question because in Clinton, 
it's, this is on everybody's imagination. I believe it's a, it's on the imaginations and hearts of every human who's ever lived. But I think in particular in Clinton, Iowa, the question of how do we find happiness? How can we flourish is a question that has this sort of gnawing, um, persistence. It's always there. And I can speak from experience growing up in Clinton. Um, you know, it's just everywhere. There's, we're haunted by this sense of brokenness, um, haunted by this sense of, you know, people used to be happy here, but they're not anymore. You know, the buildings that were once grand examples of human flourishing, um, businesses that employed people and gave uh, livelihoods to families, you know, gone. And I followed some Facebook groups recently, like um, you're from Clinton, if you remember when or something like that. And uh, there are these nostalgia groups that they share old pictures. And it's kind of fun to see what things look like in town back, you know, 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago. And almost always there's comments, the, 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 the largest um, pile of comments on those threads, like they're just all sad, like, oh, remember when Clinton used to be good? And I think really what's at the heart of all that is remember when people used to be happy here? And it's like, oh, it just, it just drives that knife right into your heart. Like, oh no. You know, I used to, people used to be happy. I used to be happy. You know, there's just a heartbreak to it all. And, and I, I, I think that we have to, as Christians, we have to cast, um, we have, to be faithful to the scriptures, we have to look at people with a straight face and say, Jesus wants you to be happy. And I think as good Bible-believing Christians, we, we sometimes balk at that and we're like, well, Jesus wants you to be joyful, but joyful doesn't always mean uh, happy. You know, your circumstances can suck. Actually, it's not even about joyful or happiness. It could just be about the glory of God and self-denial, being faithful to the Lord. And so I think sometimes we, we, try, we, we punt those conversations or we just outright deny that God's plan for, um, the peop- for humans is to even find happiness. Um, but you don't live like that. Just be honest. You know, if that's you and you've, you've said um, the point of the Christian life is not to be happy, like, I just want to say that you don't actually live as if that's true. You know, Augustine, it's famous that, I mean, some, tons of people have said this, but it's famous that Augustine, he said that, you know, basically what drives uh, the decisions of every human being ever is the pursuit of happiness. Uh, the desire to live a, a meaningful and flourishing life. And, um, and, you know, people define that differently, but ultimately we're, we're after, that's our aim as human beings. And we know as Christians who read our scriptures that it says in Ecclesiastes that God put eternity in the hearts of men. Uh, humans were created with this innate sense that there's something more out there that I, I don't actually have in my experience at the moment, but I want it. It's something out there. It's just out of reach. It's hovering just above consciousness, as C.S. Lewis says. Um, and when we want it, we reach up for it. And, uh, and I, I want to say with a straight face that Jesus is just crystal clear that that desire for happiness was put there by God. 
and that you will only find it ultimately when you find it in Jesus, when you find it in the kingdom of God, in the person and the work of Jesus. So another piece of of historic cultural background that I think is helpful is uh, a phrase called inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology is just a fancy sort of million, you know, $5 theological word. Um, Inaugurated means uh, it's begun, something has been initiated, started, uh, and, and eschatology is the study of, of the end times. So um, don't let that kind of scare you away. It's basically the end has, like how things will end up in the end of human history um, as things come to a close uh, and we enter into our eternal reality. So like Christians historically have called that heaven in the English language, like we're going to heaven when we die. That's an eschatology. You believe something will happen at the end of your life um, and, uh, and, and you will live the rest of your life in eternity and eternal bliss. So heaven is your eschatology. Now, inaugurated eschatology means is basically that the, um, the hope for the future has broken into the present, which is a very strange and cool concept. And it's present all over the scriptures. And so the Jews, uh, the, um, so Jesus was a Jew. I think it's worth repeating that, but, uh, Jesus comes from the, the tradition uh, the Hebrew tradition of longing for um, the Messiah. So the Jews held a hope that one day there will be a person that God will anoint with his spirit to bring God's reign, his rule and his reign on earth as it is in heaven. And this really gets back to the garden. So if you read the very first section of scripture in the story of God, um, God created the world according to his design and he, he charged the human beings, Adam and Eve, the first humans. Um, he, he said, here is everything for your life and for flourishing. Here's some beautiful garden plants. Here's some um, plants that you can get food from. Um, here's some animals that you can live um, with and name and you can husband and take care of. And there's all sorts of things that you can, you can cultivate this world and, and just really bring out its flourishing and beauty. And God says, if you do this according to my design and my ways, then you will flourish. And and, and he gives them a, a restriction, a prohibition. He says, do not take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course they did. They took the, they took the fruit. And, and what that symbolizes there in that text, um, what that means rather, is that Adam and Eve chose to rebel. Um, they've mucked up God's world. And the rest of the story of the scriptures is, is really a heartbreaking story where humans just really ruin and make a mess of God's world that he created for us to flourish in according to his design. And uh, the rest of the story is about God pursuing messed up, broken people and promising to redeem all of it, not just um, bring us to heaven when we die, but to restore our broken bodies, to restore our broken minds, broken hearts, and broken buildings, and broken trees, and broken roads, all of it. God's promise is to restore and redeem all of it. And the Messiah is going to bring in that reality. Uh, and we call that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. And the resurrection of Christ proved that Jesus was that Messiah. Jesus is was the long-awaited for Messiah. And these Jews, um, they would have seen that, and they would have seen this embedded deeply in their stories. 
They would have said, oh man, this is the guy. This is the person that we've, that Isaiah the prophet has foretold, uh, the person who's going to bring um, flourishing to our people and, and liberate us from oppression, from Roman rule, all of these things, and he's going to bring us into a place of flourishing. And so um, the resurrection symboled that the end that they were hoping for, the end meaning uh, God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, the end that they were hoping for has broken through, like sun come up over the horizon, has cracked through the darkness, and they are are invited to walk in that in the here and now. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, just before he, he gives this sermon, this teaching, he has proclaimed the good news that this kingdom is here and all sorts of broken people are coming to Jesus and they're getting healed by Jesus. So he is the Messiah. He's healing the broken. He's healing people with broken um, bodies, you know, the sick, the afflicted with various diseases, those that were oppressed by demons. Uh, any, anyone, these people that were the, the losers, the bottom of the barrel, the, the heartbroken, all these folks are coming to Jesus because they want uh, the kingdom of God. They want to be happy. They want to flourish. And they see Jesus as the person who's going to usher that in. And so um, Jesus, he is announcing this kingdom of God. He's healing people. And these people start following him. And he then ascends a mountain um, high enough uh, so that he can, there's a decent crowd that's starting to follow him. And so he, he gets up to a high place so that he can communicate better and be seen and heard. But beyond that, um, Jesus climbing up a mountain. This is why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus climbing up the mountain is uh, holds deep, historic, storied um, significance and symbolism. So Jesus climbing up the mountain would have been, um, to the Jew, would have been like hearing Moses climb up the mountain, right? They, there was a, there's a rich tradition in not just the Jewish um, religious culture, but all over, in all sorts of cultures, um, mountains hold a deep significance. Uh, and so the God, you know, the gods in the Greek, Greek culture lived up on the mountains. And, and so Jesus climbing up the mountain, something was about to happen. And Jesus is posturing himself as the true and better Moses. He's posturing himself as the true and the better, um, you know, lawgiver, like the way giver, like this is, this is what it looks like to live uh, in the kingdom of God. I'm about ready to give you a description of that life. Uh, Jesus is the better, true and better master teacher. Uh, and not only that, this would have signaled to a Greek um, Hellenized culture that Jesus is the true and better philosopher sage. So Jesus up on the mountain is just, he's posturing himself as the authoritative teacher. And he's about ready to give a vision of human flourishing. And so, um, I already went through that. I'm looking through an outline here. I want to, I want to be as helpful as possible. Um, kind of already talked about teaching or our culture and how we cheapen the, the word, um, happiness and, so, so Jesus is, is painting a picture and casting a vision for human flourishing here. And, uh, and I don't want to go into the like details of the sermon. I want to leave, I want to leave the actual sermons that I'm going to preach on Sunday mornings for that. But, um, essentially 
I want I want to point out two ways in which there's probably your tendency to read the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to, spoiler alert, I'm going to give away my tendency has been to read the sermon this way. So typically I read it like a good reformed guy, you know, uh, a good like fanboy of John Calvin and Martin Luther. And I read the Sermon on the Mount as uh, a New Testament version of the law. And as, you know, we know, uh, from reading Calvin and Luther is that uh, the law and Paul, right? This is what Paul says, is that one of the things that the law does, uh, which the law is, you know, these sort of set of rules and, and prohibitions and you, you shouldn't do this and you should do this. What the law does is it reveals how imperfect we are, how messed up we are, how, you know, what, like it reveals our weakness to actually follow the law. So it reveals our imperfections and our, Uh, to use the theological word sinfulness. It reveals our sinfulness and how far we've missed the mark of God's design. And so as I've read the Sermon on the Mount since becoming a Christian, I've just interpreted the whole thing as totally unlivable. Like, you know, it's, it's like, man, I can't attain that. There's so much, you know, there's so much in here that, that calls people to a higher standard, like don't lust and, you know, like the sexual ethic that Jesus, um, you know, teaches, it just seems unattainable. Um, turn the other cheek, uh, giving to the needy, fasting. There's all sorts of stuff in there that I'm like, man, I can't, I can't do that. And so I've just almost immediately jumped from, here's the words on the page that Jesus is teaching to, I can't do that. Therefore, this, the whole purpose of this passage must just be to push me into the grace of God. And just rest in the fact that God, um, through Jesus, has done all that's necessary on my behalf to make me right with God and to give me righteousness, justification, you know, those benefits of the cross. And that's all true. Like, it's really true. But um, what I want to say to people who are like me in that is that that what that tends to do is it makes it seem abstract and unlivable. It totally just like, you know, why does Jesus need to teach? Like, why does he need two chapters of teaching to tell me that? Like, I know that, you know, like I know that I, uh, I know the curse of the law and, uh, you know, there must be more to it. This is seems he's, this is such an elegant and such a, a truthful telling of, you know, this vision for the good life and this vision for uh, what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus? And I'm just like, there's gotta be more to it than that. Uh, and here's another ditch. So that was one thing, one, one common way to look at this. Another ditch would be um, to look at it as a formula. Like, if I do this, then God's going to bless me. And I want to propose, I want to say that that's just another form of legalism, is, you know, reducing our life with God as just some sort of genie in a bottle or formulaic, like, well, if I'm a good boy, then God is Santa Claus going to give me a bunch of good gifts. And so we, if we look at it that way, then we see the Beatitudes, for example, when it says, blessed are the, are the meek, um, or blessed are the poor in spirit. We tend to, uh, if we look at it that way, we go, well, I must be, I must strive to be poor in spirit, or I must strive to be persecuted, for example. This is the most obvious one, why this doesn't work. I must strive to be persecuted so that I can get blessed. And that is not 
that's not the Christian way. We're not twisting God's, you know, we're not using morality to twist God's arm to give us a blessing. And so there must be something else going on here. And the what I'm arguing that I see, what I see in the scriptures is that what, what Jesus is really saying here is he's describing a state of being for a person who is in the kingdom of God. So we have to let the uh, end of chapter four help us interpret the context of chapter five is that it's a lot of broken, um, sick, messed up people that have, that were in, are in need of healing and in need of God's grace have come to Jesus. And now Jesus is going to describe um, this vision for living life in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, here's, here's some of the characteristics of those who are included in that. And so it's not a formula for getting God's blessing, you know, right? Like, so I can go get stuff. Uh, It is um, a comprehensive view for human flourishing. And so I want to flesh that out more uh, in the sermons to come. So like, if you're, um, if you're part of our church, like obviously, you know, come on Sunday mornings and you'll hear a more in-depth teaching on each particular element of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you're not a part of our church, or if you are a part of Hope City and you just can't make it on a Sunday morning because it's about to be summer, and I know a lot of you are, you know, you're going to go camping. You're going to go do some other stuff. Just pop on the website, and uh, and I want these to be resources for you because I'm super convinced that if we are to um, reach the Clinton community uh, with the gospel of Jesus, we need to uh, really lean into practicing the way of Jesus. So we're going to find uh, a lot of that in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and I think it's going to be super helpful. God's going to use it in, in really, really wonderful ways. Um, and, you know, I, my, my challenge to you is that come expected to be surprised. Uh, I was talking with a buddy last night, and he was just saying how God's been surprising him with uh, grace and kindness, and, uh, and we see that. We just see that with Jesus and his resurrection, just surprising, just blindsiding his disciples with just, man, like the disciples just didn't see the Jesus life coming. Jesus says, come follow me. And they drop their nets and they follow and they just don't know what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is not a, he's not a uh, fit in a box, neat and tidy. Oh, I got it. Got all figured out kind of guy. Jesus is going to lead us into a place of of flourishing, to use the word we've been using, uh, that we we didn't even know was possible, and so that's what I want uh, to invite you into as you follow along and through the Sermon on the Mount, through Jesus's teaching here, is that living the Jesus way, um, it, be prepared to be surprised by how good it can be, by how good this life is in the Spirit of God in God's kingdom. And, uh, you know, I think it's just really relevant to living life in Clinton. I think it's going to equip us. The Sermon on the Mount is going to equip us to go into this community and be, to use language from the sermon, uh, salt and light. It's going to equip us to be a light in this community. To be uh, Jesus' people in Clinton is to be people who bring light and hope, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's my prayer for you um, as we go through this. That's my prayer for you right now even wherever you're at, in your car, whatever. I just pray that God would give you a a great sense that he is, uh, that he has a purpose on your life and that he he wants to teach you what it looks like to not just exist and wait for heaven, but to really flourish and to live a a happy and meaningful life. And, And God 
can bring you into that. And I believe he will bring you into that by grace through faith. So um, whether you're you know, a member of Hope City Church or not, we just hope that this podcast overall has been helpful for you and that it has stirred your affections to live for the glory of Jesus and the joy of your local community.